I have a guest with me today that uh, I had the fortunate, uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, meet a couple of weeks ago and hear him speak. He is a really dynamic speaker and he's a, uh, he was a tank commander. He's an army vet. Uh, he was uh, kind of a military brat, I think, and he was a cop's kid. And uh, so I'm really excited to welcome Walt Blackman to the show. Walt, thanks so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you having me here. Thank you. And thanks for what you do in all, all of law enforcement. We sure appreciate that. So uh, you're a state representative in Arizona and you're running for Congress. And one of the things that you're campaigning on is your support of American law enforcement. Let's start right there and talk about that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think when people talk about reform, what goes in their what goes in their mind are defund the police and they need to reform the police department. We probably we need to start with the communities. We need to reform the communities because police are just they're just acting as they're supposed to do legally. So it's important that the legislation that I've written, particularly here in Arizona, that money, those returns, like criminal justice reform, will go back into helping police departments increasing their tool bag and giving them more to work with and giving them more opportunities uh, to, to just serve us as they are. So the bill that I wrote um, generates $480 million um, over the next 10 years. And those dollars go back into police departments. We get the government out of the way and let sheriffs and uh, uh, police chiefs run their programs how they see fit with those dollars that come in from uh, those savings. Well, and I love to hear that because there is a lot of um, federal involvement in local uh, state and county law enforcement around the country. And, uh, and I don't know about you, but I find that concerning. Do you think, and, and again, you're, now you're going to run for federal office. Do you think we sh as citizens should be concerned about a potential federalization of our local law enforcement? We very much should be concerned. It happened in Nazi Germany and we don't want it to happen here. So one of the reasons that I am running is to get federal government out of the way of the states. We need to let states handle their local jurisdictions and their business to include police departments. When we start federalizing local police, then we have lost our eye on the ball and we're actually violating the constitution. Absolutely. Now, you, uh, you were not in law enforcement, but um, you had a really terrific career in the military. But I want to talk first about what was it like to mm -hmm. be a military cop's kid? Well, I, I, whenever I did something wrong, I found out pretty quickly, or he found out, you know, before I got home. We lived in a small community because he was a military cop's kid. Um, but I got to tell you, I was really proud of my dad uh, for what he did and how, and how he raised me. You know, and I thought it was real cool. You know, he had his badge and he had his firearm and he used to let me do ride alongs with him. And it was just really great. And I learned I learned at that point, my dad taught me a very important lesson that the first contact that a young person should have with law enforcement should be a positive one instead of a negative one. So there are more positive interactions with police officers, law enforcement, then the likelihood that officer is going, to, is going to be part of that development because police officers are in our communities every single day, just like my dad was in the community every single day. So when he saw a kid doing something wrong, he was able to teach, coach, and mentor. 
Um, and I think that that's what we need to give back to police officers and law enforcement, give them the opportunity to do real community policing without having to be scared about somebody calling, you know, racism or what have you and just uh, abusing our law enforcement officers. So I'm real proud of my dad, uh, uh, just a great guy. And I'm proud of him for his service, 26 years in the United States Air Force, and also his uh, continuing uh, service with law enforcement. Now, uh, as a um, as a politician, when we talk about community policing, the defund the police movement has stripped a lot of agencies of their ability to do community policing because they're trying to just put enough cops on the street. What 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 do you think we can do, and and how can the federal government support community policing initiatives that we need to bring back? Well, first of all, if we talk about the black community, if you go into a black community and you ask them, do you want to defund the police? They look at you like you're crazy because the police in those communities actually help the residents and the folks in that lo those local areas. So black Americans don't want to defund the police. This is a narrative coming from the radical left that they want to do away with the American policing system. And they also want to control it from a federal level, which we talked about. So we need to make sure if, if the federal government is going to be involved, they are involved by funding police departments and not defunding. And also we need to look in, and this is what I'm going to look in when I'm elected to Congress, any state that decides to defund their police in these high crime neighborhoods, they're gonna lose some funding and there are gonna be some consequences with that. We have to protect our American police officers. We need to protect our law enforcement and that means funding police officers to give them the tools to do things that a lot of people just wouldn't do because of the risk and the hazards of the job. So while I love to hear that because uh, Rasmussen and the National Police Association recently did a survey where 60% of voters said, we don't want to exactly. defund the police. And 90% of those voters said that they're very concerned about the increase in violent crime. And we, we see a relationship between violent crime in this country over the last year, year and a half, uh, and the defund the police movement, don't we? Exactly. If you look at uh, Democrat-run cities where they have actually started to defund the police, Flagstaff is one of them, you see the crime rate increase. And in those areas where they put more money into police and in community policing and in programming, uh, crime has gone down. So, you know, what we're doing, the left wants to control, they say this whole narrative that black communities and communities of color, they're all they're targeted by police officers more than any. So I'm just gonna put something out there really quick. We talk about Chicago a lot, Detroit. And they say, why are more blacks targeting Detroit? Well, because there's more crime there, okay? And, there, and there's not gonna be more crime in places like Fountain Hills. And it's not because of a lack of effort that the police departments are doing. It is a lack of the, the local governments not putting enough resources into those communities to protect the everyday mom and dad family from criminals and criminal acts. So we need to get behind our police, not defund them. Well, and you talk about my native Chicago, and, and this is, you know, we have 40, 50, 60, 70 shootings a weekend and yeah. what the uh, mayor keeps talking about uh, is not supporting her police and, and it's yeah. not asking people not to participate in crime. She's talking about that guns are the problem. And I know you're a second amendment guy, 
Yeah. I, and, and and this is what is so frustrating. The guns are not the ones committing the crimes. People exactly. with guns are committing the crime. How will you help us protect our Second Amendment? Well, first of all, the Second Amendment and the Constitution is not a living, breathing document. If we start to do that, are we going to start to look at the other amendments? And when I have people on the left, particularly Black Americans, when they say, well, the Second Amendment needs to be changed, then I'll say, so should we change the 13th Amendment? And sometimes it's a deer in the headlights and say, oh, it's Emancipation Proclamation. Would you like me to change that? You want me to take away from that? Once we start walking down that slippery slope to changing the Constitution, whatever amendment it is, other amendments of the Constitution become vulnerable. The Constitution lays it out clearly. We, as an, as an American, I have a right to keep and bear arms. And that means that I have a right to protect my family and my property because that's my right, those are my liberties. So protecting the second amendment is number one on my list because we can't start chipping away at the constitution. Well, and exactly, and in, in, in some of these large urban areas where the gun laws are, are very anti second amendment, yeah. that's where so much of the crime is. I mean, we're fortunate here in Arizona where you know we have excellent gun laws in our state yeah. where if someone wants to carry legally carry a firearm um you know with they can do it um again if you look at you know Chicago or Detroit or Baltimore or New York uh that's not the case and so mo the law abiding citizens and i want to i want to remind people that most of these people in these poor urban areas where all these shootings happen, most of the people in those neighborhoods are law-abiding people. Oh, yeah. They're just under the thumb of the gangsters exactly. uh, that that are not getting, uh, you know, even if they get arrested, they're very often not getting prosecuted. Yeah, and, and they get out and they just continue to, to, to terrorize the communities. Um, and that's another reason why we shouldn't defund the police. And that's another reason why a person should be able to keep their second amendment. And I was part of a bill, I was co-sponsored a bill in Arizona that uh, makes, second, makes Arizona a Second Amendment sanctuary state. So when, if the federal government comes in and they try to take our Second Amendment, then they can't do it because we're a sovereign state. Excellent. Now here in Arizona, and I think a lot of people around the country don't give a whole lot of thought to the border, but we mm. sure think about it here in Arizona as one of the border states. And we have a real law enforcement crisis because we have exhausted, overworked, over, over uh, you know, just worn out border patrol agents yes. working our southern border, don't we? Yes. So here's the deal. Um, you got to think of it this way. The same person and same administration that let Afghanistan go, they're controlling our southern border. So that scares me and keeps me up at night. We have, we have approximately about 6,000 to 7,000 illegal aliens crossing the border. And they're not all just coming here for an education and better way of life. They're coming here to pushing drugs and human trafficking and so on and so forth. So what we need to do is we need to put more money in the hands of law enforcement on those border states so they can protect our borders more. States need to go a step further and, can, and use the COVID infrastructure dollars that we've received and continue to build a wall where those parts of the wall have not been completed. We can protect our borders. It's a matter of this administration wants to do it. I think it's important. We need to protect our borders because, you know, a sane person is not going to leave their door wide open in the middle of the night in areas that you have people that you don't know walking around. We, we, could, uh, we can close the border a, a, a lot of different ways. And I think you and I talked about this before. Um, closing the border just does not mean just closing a fence. 
and continue to build a wall. We need to close the cartel loopholes. We need to take hold of their dollars because those dollars are driving a lot of those human trafficking and the drugs that are coming into our country. If we do that and we have a presence at the border, a military presence at the border, we will be able to see some of that decrease and also close off some of the tunnels that lead into the United States. And a lot of folks think reform means lighter sentences. It doesn't. Reform means making sure that our laws that affect our kids like fentanyl, that those people get maximum sentences. So when I voted to increase sentencing structure on fentanyl, uh, folks that have committed that crime, folks are saying, well, you're criminal justice reform. I said, reform and breaking the law are two different things. You break the law and, and you're pushing fentanyl that kills people, particularly kids. We had some in Yamaha County. Then those people need to be put in jail forever. So <laughs> that's just well, me. <laughs> right. And that's the thing. And, you know, we can look back, you know, 20 some years ago when I was a young cop, you were a young soldier. Um, those mandatory minimum sentences, especially for drug offenses, yes. were seen as racist. Yeah, and, well, well. you know, and I, that, and I've heard some of the police reform people say that again now that that's that's racist. That's this. That's that. How, how do we how do we get around that? How do we deal with that? Well, first of all, we've got to make sure the narrative is clear. The left wants to put that the police departments are racist, that the programs are racist. Here's the deal. If I'm driving down a road of 55 miles an hour and I'm driving 80 miles an hour and I get stopped, it's not the police officer's fault because I'm driving 80 miles an hour. The police officer is enforcing the law, the law that they swore to protect and defend the public and the community. When we get people that are breaking the law and then the narrative gives them an excuse like it's racism it's this or that then guess what they are going to set that police officer and the, and the organizations up for failure we gotta we gotta get people to understand personal responsibility that's why i love them you know my dad was a cop because um when whenever i did something wrong it was like hey you you knew the law you broke it what do you want me to do you want me to rewrite write the law for you and that's what we're doing. We're making excuses for people to break the law and then they cry racism, which is wrong. Well, and we've kind of lost the ability to discuss these issues with any sort of um, decorum and, and give and take. And we've also really quit talking about criminality. Who is yeah. committing the crimes? Why are they committing them? It's Everything seems to be the fault of the police or politicians yeah. on whatever side I don't like, you know, it, it, it gets, yeah. it seems silly. And yet it's affecting day-to-day -day life in the United States, isn't it? It's, it's affecting police officers too on how they carry out their duty, because now you'll have some police officers that may be hesitant to stop a vehicle because a person may be a person of color or a black American. They may be hesitant to pull their, revol their service revolver out. Um, I'm not sure if they call it a service revolver anymore, but uh, my dad used to call that at all the time. But you may have police officers that, are, that, that will hesitate to do that. And if they hesitate to do that, me being a combat veteran, somebody's going to get hurt. And we don't need to put our police officers in that position. They have families they want to go home to. They are enforcing the law that legislators have made and voted on. They're not out there writing their own laws. And the folks that are committing these crimes, individual responsibility. You break a law, there's a consequence. You don't, you know, you have an option. You can break it or not break it, but you do not have control of the consequence. And that's where I'm at. And that's, and that's the kind of reform that I push in my criminal justice committee. Now, in the criminal justice reform uh, genre, 
is there talk about how we can reform criminals, how we can help them with either, uh, you know, education or programs or addiction yeah. programs as yeah. part of that, uh, as, as part of that incarceration? Exactly. So if you think, if you look at the First Step Act that President Trump wrote, um, my bill was similar to the First Step Act. And it went in and actually uh, grabbed this group of people who have been committing crimes historically and put them in drug treatment and put them in educational classes and put them in job training. But see, the problem right now is that they start to do that 30 days before they get out of prison. So if somebody's been in prison for 20 years, first of all, they've been um, indoctrinated um, into the system, and you're going to try to give them rehabilitation training a month before they get out. Rehabilitation and criminal justice reform in prison starts the day the person goes is entered into the criminal justice system, whether it be the state level, the federal level, or the county jails, because everybody funnels through the county jails before they go to, to prison. We need to identify those people then. And then we need to make sure that they don't repeat by giving them the programs, making sure they work at the programs so they don't reoffend. That's what my bill did. Um, and um, hopefully we can do more of that and, and protect police officers. My number one goal is to protect law enforcement, protect police officers. That's my number one goal. And if it goes against that, then I'll usually tell somebody to go kick rocks. Um, if, yeah, if, if, because we have to protect police officers. They are on the front lines. I mean, you're a police officer. You're on the front lines. I'm not going to get out there and kick a door in. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. Although now I got to I got to remind people, you know, you yeah. spent 20 some years in the military. You served years. 21 yeah. years. You served uh, in Iraq. You were wounded. Yeah. Um, and and one of the things we're talking about now, because you talked a minute ago about Afghanistan, is now we've got to as we come up on the um, 20th anniversary, anniversary of 9/11-01. Yeah. We got to worry about radical Islam here on American soil, don't we? Exactly. And they're coming through our borders at an alarming rate. And a lot of folks say it's immigration, but I, I call it for what it is. It's an invasion um, supported by this current administration. It's an invasion into our country and defunding the police and not keeping our borders uh, secure uh, just allows these folks to come in freely. And, and I mean, they're in the country now. They're in the country now. And it's a scary thought. Um, that's why, you know, I, I do a lot of work when we're talking about securing our borders and we're talking about protecting our police because it's clear and present danger right now to the country. Now, when we talk about, you know, again, military veteran, police veteran, one of the, one of the big issues that both our professions dealt with uh, and, and deal with it jointly is mental health. And yes. we're seeing, uh, I actually sit on the board of a um, mental health organization and we're seeing quadruple the numbers of uh, Afghanistan veterans mm -hmm. calling our hotline who are so disenchanted with what is happening. Um, you know, what are we going to do about uh, veteran and first responder mental health issues moving forward? Well, first of all, on the law enforcement side for mental health, what we need to do is extend the amount of sessions that they have. So I was supportive of a bill last year that extend those sessions out from, the, from what they were um, prior to me getting in the office. The second thing we need to do is we need to, we, for police law enforcement, we need to de, uh, not de, it's, um, it's a stigma. It's a stigma. We need to de-sigma, sigma, 
the, the you know, just the, uh, uh, you're going to mental health, that means you're weak, yada, yada, yada. The military had that same problem. We need to do that for law enforcement and we need to make it more readily available um, for Afghanistan vets and Iraq vets. I'm in actually a program, it's called the Prolonged Exposure Program. That means my deployments were back to back to back. Take a deployment when a soldier went back to back to back, they didn't have time to process what they've done Okay, then you have that high rate of PTSD or what have you. And take the law enforcement officer. That law enforcement officer goes out every single day for years. They don't have time to process. So when they retire or they, or they resign, that's when all you see all this stuff starting to come out because they didn't have a chance to process. So we need to make sure that we increase and maximize the resources for law enforcement officers, first responders to be able to process without the fear of losing their jobs because they did seek mental health. That's a law that I am going to write at, at the federal level to protect law enforcement officers because they're killing themselves. 22 veterans kill themselves a day. I don't know what the count is for law enforcement, but I know it's pretty high. So we need it to- It is. Protect... We've already had 90 police officers this year commit suicide. Yes, 90 police officers. And, and, you, and you'll be able to equate that for, to, to not having the adequate mental health resources that they deserve. Absolutely. Well, I wish we had hours to talk, but where can people find you on social media and what's your website so they can learn more? Okay, where they can find me on my Facebook, uh, Walt Blackman on Facebook, and they can go to my website, www.blackmanforcongress.com. It's a F-O-R for congress.com, and they can find me on Twitter, uh, Walt Blackman for Congress. Well, thanks so much for spending time with us. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, yes. visit us at nationalpolice.org. Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.